0: Love, talk radio. Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Justin Goodman and today's guest is Demetrius Ikonomu. As he described himself on his website, Demetrius Ikonomu was born on February 1st, 1989 in Baltimore, Maryland to a Greek father and Cypriot mother. During his childhood, Ikonomu lived in multiple cities around the United States before relocating with his family to Cyprus in 1999, then to London, then finally Brussels, Belgium, before attending university. He studied art history and creative writing at Brown University in the United States and continued to Sweden to study industrial design at Umea Institute of Design. Following the completion of his studies, Ikonomu worked as a commissioned sculptor for Piet Hein Ick Studio in Eindhoven, Holland creating busts of immense proportion out of waste material from X-Workshop. Upon conclusion of a commission with Pete Tinek, Ikonomu returned to Cyprus to complete his first novel, The Diary of Norman K.*, as well as prepare for his first solo art exi- exhibition entitled Both Truth and Knot, held at Is Not Gallery in Likosia, Cyprus, October 2015. And it's because of this novel we're here today. So, welcome, Demetrius.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, our pleasure. So, before we get into it, uh, I'm gonna have you read uh, what I think is one of the most interesting passages from the diary of Norman K. Okay. <laughs> so, if you wouldn't mind reading from page seventy, starting, uh, my mother, uh, my memories of my mother are artificial but impeccable. And I'll I'll stop you. Yeah.
1: All right. Sounds great. All right. Let me find it. Okay. All right. My memories of my mother are artificial but impeccable. As a child. I would imagine my mother surprising me at boarding school, lying to the headmaster about a family illness, and taking me instead to the fair, to a picnic in the forest, or to the cinema. An afternoon screening, we had the whole theater to ourselves. My mother made animal noises at the top of her lungs. She yelled obscenities at the screen during the previews and advertisements. Lions made lollies. If you can't bite them, lick them. Bite me. I snorted out cola gorging myself on popcorn and sweets as my mother laughed behind red and blue paper glasses at my candy-stained tongue. The film hadn't even started and I'd already finished my popcorn. She scolded me for my gluttony, simultaneously marveling at where the food all went. She would jokingly address me as the bottomless pit. I will have a small cola, and the bottomless pit will have whatever is left in the fountain. Just fill a mop bucket and put a straw in. The man behind the concession stand smiled congenially, knowing it was the expected reaction. We stifled giggles when he turned to fill our cups and popcorn boxes. The movie was a horror film. Giant radioactive insects attacking the metropolis and no one is safe. The enormous mandibles jumping beyond the screen and my mother pinching my thigh just as the bugs would lunge towards me. I jumped, naturally, spilling my soda on my pants, and my mother laughed and laughed. I blushed, mortified. It looked as though I wet myself. I like to think that I would have laughed had I not been so direly close to actually pissing my pants when she grabbed me but I know I was too self-conscious to ever accept the joke at my expense gracefully. She noticed I was not taking the joke well at all. Still laughing, with a kiss upon my forehead, she went from friend to guardian in an instant. The jokes she would play on others were the ones I remembered most fondly, how she could make light of a world which intimidated me so greatly. She was not the best driver. One summer, while Father was on a business trip, we planned a weekend at the lake house. We packed our overnight bags. She filled hers with a swimsuit, two towels, a fresh shirt, a carton of cigarettes, socks, Markson and Laporte, I packed swim shorts, two penny comics, a drawing pad, and two fountain pens. "'Give me those,' she said. "'They'll break and stay in everything if you throw them in like that. "'We'll put them in the glove box.' "'I told your father, if I didn't tell him once, I told him a hundred times, "'this car is horrible for the summertime. "'It's black and hot and the top won't come down and the seats are leather. "'He likes it for driving around clients,' he says." The look of this automobile facilitates good business. He says cabriolets are unsafe. Anyone can tear through the canvas with a knife and ransack the damn thing. The damn thing. Everything is the damn thing. I told him you're just worried you'll look up and tear it with your big hook nose. He acted mad, but you could see him smiling under his mustache. Next year, we'll be cruising to the beach with the top down. I promise you, Norman. Uh, (laughs) Should I keep going? Yeah, please do. All right. (laughs) Our bag (laughs) and food for the lake house pantry were in the trunk. Necessities for the drive candy, colas, ham sandwiches, pretzels, white chocolate, a pack of cigarettes, a lighter and a comic book dumped in the back seat, sliding across the vinyl upholstery at every bend. Colas clinked on crayons, and mother kept one hand on the wheel as she rummaged for the lighter on the back seat floor. Norman, see if you can find where the damn lighter is and light me a cigarette, please. The drive to the lake house was an eternity for my eight year old mind, and to have your mother to yourself for an eternity is wondrous. Roads narrowed as houses spaced themselves out between ever-growing cornfields and birch forests. Rabbit-proof fences kept animals roadside, and Mother would swerve to avoid them, coming dangerously close to the edge of the road, the size of the tires skidding on the gravel. Where the hell do all these goddamn bunnies come from? I should run a few over, help the farmers out a bit, right, Norman? The goddamn bunny hunt became a new game, and we spent the car ride counting who could find more, and who could think of the best names for them. Goddamn Humphrey funny. Goddamn Humphrey bunny. Almost left your wife a widow. Goddamn Billy, stay on your side of the fence. Rabbits on the roadside. Mother would pretend to swerve to hit them, taking the bends frantically wide and into the opposite lane. She kept this going and we laughed maniacally, swerving and leaning with the centrifugal force of the car being thrown along and across the road like a pinball. The cola swaying, dancing in union with the upright bottles. A police car behind a road flashed its
0: sirens. All right, and we can stop there. We'll leave them with okay. a little suspense. So, uh, I I really love this passage and everything that happens after, but before we even get into that, uh, I think the first important question is, so what led you, what are you more inclined towards, sculpture or, uh, literature, and what, what led you to pursue this novel in particular?
1: Okay, well, to answer the first question, um... (laughs) I definitely consider myself a novelist first, but this this book, I mean, the process of writing it, I started it as my university thesis, and at the time I was working with my professor Carol Meso and we wrote the first 60 or 70 pages together, she helped me, and after which time it just came time to graduate, and I was <laughs> extremely nervous as to what my next move should be. And I asked for her advice. I told her, listen, I have this opportunity to study design and art in Sweden for a year. Should I take it or should I work on the novel as well? Or should I work on the novel instead? And she said that I should definitely go to Sweden and have a horrible time in the dark, learn a lot more about myself, (laughs) and (laughs) use that experience in the novel later. So both endeavors seem to be evolving concurrently now but i'm definitely
0: a novelist first that that's been i i'm glad that you i mean i'm not glad that you experienced that darkness but <laughs> I, I am i'm glad to hear that you mentioned it uh particularly because i think one of the most interesting aspects of uh norman is that he's an incredibly isolated and uh uh i mean uh, ensconced in darkness. I mean, he has an obsession with, with Byron, who, I mean, is definitive uh, goth, if I have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> so, what... I mean, there's always that talk of debut novelists uh, mirroring themselves in their characters. I, I don't get this particular aspect of you uh, from this uh, interaction so far, but I'm wondering, what... Aspects of Norman K. Do you feel are reflected in yourself, if any, uh, in 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 this the instance of his um, grimness?
1: Okay. Well, um, <coughs> I started the novel when I was in a space where everything was up for grabs. Everything was in question. So I was finishing university. I didn't know what to do after that. My parents had recently divorced, and I had yet to reconcile with either of them. I just finished a very, I just a very, very important relationship with uh, my ex-girlfriend just ended. So all these things, which I held, you know, as uh, indicators of, war, of how I would move forward later, they were just completely gone. And I took that as a starting point. And then Norman Kay is a caricature of that. So I mean, it's a caricature of that. I mean, taking that to <coughs> an extreme of, uh, to a ridiculous extreme, I guess, uh, of
0: loneliness. I I like that you say ridiculous, because I get the feeling that Norman Kay is meant to be, in his entirety, just a joke. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, d- is there any point that you would say that you should, uh, the reader should take Norman Kay seriously at all? Because he doesn't seem, uh, um, he, he is even described by one of his, what I would call a frenemy, speaking in the dialect of a victorian person who just woke up after a 200 year nap uh is there any point that's supposed to be serious about norman
1: well i mean the uh norman himself understands that he's an unreliable narrator he's taking us on a very unreliable journey and he hopes you're not taking him seriously um and uh, i think it's the moments where you connect with him despite the fact that you realize that he's unreliable on so many levels that are the moments in the novel that i that i worked hardest towards i think so i mean i don't know if that answers your question but yes he the, i understand that he's definitely a caricature of of a Byron-esque figure <laughs> i mean the hopeless
0: I mean, the, the hopeless romantic he'd be, he'd be society in
1: withering heights
0: i mean he absolutely would uh, i think uh i mean i think what what's interesting about that that inability to trust him or for him to trust himself is i think it leads to the like those beautiful moments like I had you read just before where um as a reader you're kind of you you succumb to his his extreme imaginativeness where he's trying to Uh, The novel almost comes across as, like, a long coping mechanism for him, as a way to uh, uh, externalize and avoid the actual conflicts of his life. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And especially from the passage we
1: just read. (laughs) A small spoiler about the book, uh, Norman's mother is dead, and we're reading a scene where he's imagining who his mother would have been, and the relationship they would have had. So in that imagination, he fantasizes about a mother who is devoid of any of the insecurities that he himself has. She's confident towards the world. She's not afraid. She's not afraid to confront people. She's not in any way unsure of herself.
0: And she's even and vaguely criminal, correct?
1: She's even vaguely criminal. Fearless. Fearless.
0: <laughs> to, to <laughs> That's the, a nice way of putting extent, it. To the greatest extent, to the great to the other side of the spectrum,
1: where you know Norman is so fearful, she's on the other side of the spectrum, and he's fantasizing. For uh, he's using that that fantasy as you know, what would happen if this person was in my life? How different would I be? So yeah, so um, I, all the whole book is a coping mechanism, and especially that passage that you chose is, I think, is one of the epitomes.
0: Yes, yeah, I, I mean, in particular, uh, for the listener, that scene. There's actually a moment where. During his uh, creation of his mother, he actually creates a meta-meta story inside it, where he imagines himself. He imagines his young self imagining the young self as an ice climber, and that takes up yeah. a good part. And I think that's like a that's that's a really I think uh, a beautiful moment, particularly because uh, for those of you who haven't had a chance to visit Demetrius's site yet, uh, the both true and not exhibit had a particular um, the Drip Sculpture series, I believe, where uh, you would... I, if you could explain the process behind that before I continue. I don't want to damage the, uh, the idea. Okay
1: well, okay, well, the sculptures have to do with the idea of memory and how every time you think of something, every time you revisit a memory in your mind, you change the memory slightly. So with each revisiting of the memory... Whatever current circumstances you're in, alter the memory. So every time you try to revisit the memory to keep it fresh in your mind, paradoxically what you're doing is changing it and altering it slightly. So what I would do is I would take an an object that for me had great sentimental value and I would cover it in a layer layer of epoxy resin and then another layer of epoxy resin and then another layer of epoxy resin hundreds of times until finally the original object, you can still see it inside the clear epoxy resin but the sculpture itself is now a completely different object entirely. And it an attempt at, you know, an attempt to explain this,
0: this paradox of memory for me. And, and I mean, I think it's uh, an incredible uh, display. I mean, I, the one picture you have on your website I, I thought was really interesting. I think it has the, it is exactly what how he describes his imagination of his mother, artificial but impeccable. Yeah, yeah. Um, which which i think brings me to uh i think an, it, something that's interesting to me that i actually want to know uh why particularly so norman is uh, constantly imagining the appearance of the appearance zeus of- the greek god a fellow the shakespearean tragic hero and yes. Pablo Picasso the yes. painter uh, reoccurring yes. in his life with they're pretty much all bragged a uh, full of braggadocio and mostly assholes, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but they keep Absolutely. appearing, and and why why particularly uh why those figures? I have my own theories, but I'd be curious to see what your reasoning was. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Um. Uh. Well, the the premise behind it is he's visited by these people
1: as surrogates for father figures. So these are three surrogates for father figures fulfilling three different needs that a person would have. And in Pablo, he's hoping for a role model when it comes to professional success and ambition. And in Zeus, he's looking for a role model when it comes to ideas of morality, when it comes to ideas of how to live your life. And in Othello, he's looking for a role model in um, ideas of love and beauty. But all three figures that he's chosen are entirely cracked and entirely self-absorbed, and he slowly becomes to real. He comes to realize that even through these imaginary characters that he's created, he can't seem to find a role model, and he's lonelier than he actually knows. <laughs> and those three characters in particular,
0: well, Othello especially. Um, I'm fascinated by Othello because
1: of a lot of the similarities that we've that I sh- I, I I identify with Othello in a lot of ways. As uh, an outsider, I was born in the States, but in the States I was considered Greek. And then when we moved to Cyprus, I was considered American. And then when we moved to uh, the UK, I was considered Cypriot when I was never born in Cyprus. And then in Belgium, I was considered British. And then when I went to Brown to study, people called me Belgium. And I always had this feeling of an outsider, and especially a fellow's connection with Cyprus. And I just, I just always had him in the back of my mind ever since I first read Othello, ever since I first saw him in a play. I just wanted to personify him somehow and just hear how he would talk. Hmm. So and so with Othello, there's there's that connection, and I chose him specifically because of that, but then he evolved into the character that he is for the purposes of the novel.
0: Hmm.
1: So and with Pablo Picasso, it's something similar as well.
0: That's, that's fair. So, I mean, Othello in the novel uh, is... Uh, ambiguously a villain, but uh, I won't even go so far as to call him a villain. But he has this negative connotation that surrounds him, and you really don't learn until much later what exactly sparks this this fear and I I would say resentment. Um, yeah. Do you? Uh, and the way you're describing your experience as a, uh, a U.S. born uh, person of Greek descent and uh, go traveling all around the place, it seems. A big part of um, Norman's experience is that too. He's an outsider. He's constantly cast out. He can't attend college, but he doesn't feel like he belongs where he where the the landlady uh, lets him stay. Um, and it, it it strikes me as interesting that um, uh, here's a particular passage where he says, "I would fantasize about the day I would inherit my own mask." And sometimes wondered if I had I was I was already behind it. So you're so, picking you're picking some pretty good passages. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I, the I okay. mean the, there are some really good passages. I would I would be remiss to ignore them. Um, and I think um, what, what's interesting about this is that, like you said, he's aware of the fact that he's. Just basically lying and and making up uh, so much of this. Yet, um, I, I get the sense that, and he kind of hints at this later that he doesn't there it doesn't seem to be a sincere place to stop and land. Memory doesn't seem to solidify like with the drop, the the, the not the drop, the the drip sculptures where there's layers and layers and it's always uh, uh, altered slightly. Um, is there what? What exactly would you say is like the? Is there a place of comfort in this? Because even the ending, which I don't want to spoil, but even the ending has like a a slight discomfort to it.
1: Is there a place of comfort for the reader or for Norman?
0: Uh, f- for both. I think they have a, a inherently interconnected relationship by this point. Oh, okay. Well, the place of com-
1: is projecting his fantasy into the reality of the moment. And there's moments when he realizes that and then says, you know what, I don't care. And when you say you don't care anymore that everything that you're perceiving is entirely subjective, everything you're perceiving is tinted and tainted, you can allow yourself to be immersed fully in the fantastic experience. And in that, there is a certain comfort, for Norman at least. Where the lines between perception and reality are no longer of any importance, that's where the comfort lies for Norman, and that's what—that's what—that's how writing acts as consolation for him. Hmm.
0: Uh, I mean, I'm glad you said that actually, because I think uh, for for those of you who haven't seen the actual cover of the book, um, the the biggest letter on the, the cover is the letter K, and that actually. I'm constantly drawn to, when it comes to letter K, I'm sure you're familiar with literature, having graduated a degree in creative writing, Um, but I'm constantly drawn to the idea of uh, Kafka. I mean, uh, obviously, and I think (laughs) you talking about the idea of accepting the absurdity of the world as as the uncertainty and the subjectivity of it is, I mean, Kafka's shtick. It's the same thing with Camus and... Uh, 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 people who I would associate with absurdist philosophy. If you think is that that's correct, what would you say are your influences regarding this novel? Well,
1: I would say that as I was <laughs> writing this novel, I took a trip for two weeks to Prague, and I visited the <laughs> coffee museum. So, I <laughs> all right, well, there you go. <laughs> it's entirely spot on. And um, yeah, it's like you're looking at my library right now. I have a book. I have Tammuz *The Outsider* taking out right now. I'm be rereading it right now as we speak. So. Wow. And I'm glad you mentioned the cover because it was there was a lot of
0: thought that went behind this big, fat, red K right in the middle. <laughs> I, I can so. tell, honestly. It's a very conscious effort, and I, I appreciated it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, actually, speaking of, of things that are conscious efforts, also, the again, for those of you who haven't seen this, the, the image uh, for the – this is self-published, correct? It is, yes. Yeah, so the image you use for the quote-unquote publishing house, whatever you use to describe it, mm-hmm. is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's uh, ikon, which is the first four letters of your last name, which is Greek for likeliness, or something of that nature, yes?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, it is.
0: And I think that's, I, I think, pivotal to what seems to be at the heart of uh, your art in general, I think, which is the sense of everything is likeliness, but nothing is, is. To quote the uh, uh, um, um, Wallace Stevens, uh, um, except with less happiness, there's no Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the-the. Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely, and that's something that fascinates me greatly, the the line between what is actually the reality of the situation and how it's being um, perceived. That's the line that I play with with my artwork as well. Um, some of the other artwork, I don't know if you saw it on the website, has to do with facial recognition in places where there are no faces, where it's just geometric lines or geometric um, patterns, but you see a face. And you become immediately aware of the fact that what you're seeing and what you're perceiving are two entirely different things. And likeliness is exactly what the book is exploring as well. That's face. And the characters in the book, the quote-unquote real characters in the book, uh, operate on other on different sides of that spectrum. I would say western and eastern sides of that spectrum. Well, absolutely. The other two. yeah. supporting the supporting cast, I would say, without giving out any more spoilers than that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, I think that's that's interesting, and I actually it brings me to a question that for any a multimedia artist, I, I it's important to answer, how much influence in your writing do you see your, your sculpture work, your, your visual art, and, what, what, what visual artists and sculptors and the so like do you find uh, are most inspirational to you, even especially in regards to this, this novel in particular, if any?
1: In regards to this novel in particular, Wow. Okay.
0: Hmm. <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm asking the hard-hitting questions now.
1: That, that's, a, that's an incredibly difficult question to answer because, because for me, visual art and um, literature uh, fulfill two very different needs. Although they may be influenced by similar writing, and they are influenced by similar writing, and by similar writing, I mean
0: Fyodor Copra and the Tao of Physics. Mm. Um, I was reading a lot of, of that. I was reading a lot of David Markson and Wittgenstein's Mistress. I was literally reading a lot of Wittgenstein. Mm. And I was um, reading a lot of Plato at the time. You know, the idea of the man in the cave Exa- of, and the fire course. behind him. Now, <laughs> Actually, that there's a, to... very, there's a
1: very thinly veiled parallel to that in the book, of course, as well. <laughs> of I'm just course. it right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is a
0: very, very... um. I mean, it, it's no surprise to me that you have... Camus on your bookshelf right now, because this is a, this is a deeply philosophical novel. Uh, I think it's, uh, actually what I was drawn to was, I think it's, it's an incredibly idea driven novel. It actually made me think of, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Joseph Kossif, Um who wrote the, the End of Philosophy, or art, art is Philosophy, or something of that name. Uh, where he would he had basically said that philosophy is dead because art has taken its place. I don't know if that's the that's the sense I got from the diary of Norman Cage that it it is trying to uh resuscitate the philosophical novel. Is is would you say that's a a, a good way of looking at the novel or would you have a different way of, of looking at it?
1: I would I would definitely look at it that way under the caveat that you're being guided through these very difficult questions by a, a sophomore drunken narrator. So, <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hide behind the narrator a little bit because I'm aware that my ideas on philosophy are still very naive because of my age. But I'm, I'm, I'm definitely earnestly attempting to answer these questions that come about when you find yourself... <laughs> space that I found myself after university, when you finally start taking all the tools you were giving up, given up until that point, and you're finally asked to use them to think for yourself, and all of a sudden these questions become much more relevant. So yeah, I would agree that I would agree with your assertion that it's an attempt to resuscitate the philosophical novel, and I think most of the agents and the publishers that I tried to. Um, Query would agree with that as well
0: because <laughs> <laughs> not a big selling point, I guess. <laughs> the
1: story behind that journey for the book is quite funny as well because I found a couple of publishers and I was so uncompromising in my um, in my priorities for the book, and mm-hmm. that this is driven by these questions. It's not driven by the narrative, even though there is a very there is a compelling narrative to the book that's secondary to the questions. And I fell out with a couple of publishers and decided <laughs> finally to publish it myself.
0: I mean, uh, I I am all for indie publication, and I mean, this is a. I'm glad that you published it as as is because there's there's a lot of um, to use I think a horribly inaccurate word, but the one that comes to mind, there's a lot of juiciness here. <laughs> um, it's just a lot of questions. It's just a lot of questions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, it's just one big question mark. Um. <laughs> actually i'm glad that you're talking about um your your uh the naivete that comes with age obviously I'm not exactly an old man myself, so I understand what you're saying um so that actually brings me to um i think uh the biggest question I have which is all the characters um all the characters in the novel uh are are generally young. Even the imagined characters are young, with the exception of, um, excluding the imagined characters, um, the the father of uh, Norman K, who, uh, to not give too much away, basically abandons him, um, in a in a number of senses, and then the landlady who is, adopts him more or less, um, and I I, I get the sense there there's the mother, the imagined mother, and the the Dolores, the landlady, kind of live on opposite spectrums. Where one's living life to the fullest and is embedded in the world, where Dolores is thoughtful, contemplative, and also kind of dismisses all the all the the filthy lucre of the world, if I can use that phrase. Uh, do you think that's like, do you see that as a, a natural progression of thought for, for aging, that there's more of a an Eastern leaning in thoughts when it comes to like Buddhism and whatnot? Or is it is it less linear, and it just happens whoever becomes whatever they become? I think, um, and this is, this is, I think and I hope
1: that, when you're young, you're much more willing to bang your head against the wall and hope for that Western ideal of progress and hope for that Western ideal of perfection, hope that one day if you keep pushing and you keep trying new things, you'll find that ideal. But with age, after you've banged your head against the wall for a couple of decades, you realize that it's less about an external att- an attempt to find an external source of satisfaction. It's more an attempt to realize that the vessel inside you is empty, and through that realization, you finally calm down. And I think in the book, Dolores is that beacon for Norman. And that, just that voice where she says, look, there's a lot of things going on right now. In your mind, there's a lot of things that you're dealing with, but you need to realize that there's not going to be an external source of comfort. And that in itself for Norman, instead of being a source of comfort for him, that voice, it, it fuels him farther to run away from his own mind. So it's sort of a vicious cycle.
0: What, would you would you say that Norman is is uh, mentally unstable then?
1: I would. I think we would all have to agree <laughs> after the first twenty pages. <laughs> there's, something, there's something off, and I wanted it to be from page ten. You're going on a journey with somebody who doesn't know where he's taking it, and I wanted that to be abundantly clear. I wanted to, every every person in the book, every subject in the book, every character in the book, to, to, to for the reader to understand that. There, this is coming from someone who doesn't know what he's telling you, whether it's real or not. Truth has been abandoned, or the idea of objectivity has been abandoned from the first page. So, yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: and and I,
0: I think by the first page, let alone the tenth page, you're you're already being introduced to Zeus, Othello, and Pablo Picasso in the same bar. So <laughs> kind of hard to yeah. not take it that way.
1: <laughs> and it's great. It was great when I was when I sent this out to some to some. To some friends and some close family to read it and people who I trust to read it for the first time and how adamant they were in attempting
0: to make Zeus, Othello and Pablo real people. Hmm. So they were so like where is Zeus from? Is he a classmate of Norman's? And he's at the bar with Othello and is Pablo an art professor of
1: his? And I'm like, no, it's Zeus Othello and Pablo and the and and the, it was very interesting to me how um, how difficult it was for some of those first readers to suspend reality to the level that I wanted them to. So I had to make it even more clear from the very first page that this is not... We're not going to a place where things uh, are objective in any way.
0: Hmm. That's, that's a really interesting uh, consequence. I, that's a fun story just to think about.
1: Exactly. I, the consequence of that... It forces the reader to read it in a way in which his interpretation becomes even more valid. It's more of a sense of, it's more of a communication than it would be if you're being presented with objective fact.
0: I believe there's a part in here um, where you even have uh, Norman explain what his philosophy of writing is, and the writing is... Uh, roughly that, to to try to communicate something across time and, and give some sort of perspective.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, exactly. It's, it's that and it's... Okay. Alright. I'm going to throw out another a name now. And um, When I was a freshman in university, I was forced by one of my professors, and I, I mean forced. I was forced to read Derrida oh,
0: for
1: the fun. first time. And the idea of the signifier and the signified. And mm-hmm. I remember
0: Would try to convey his ideas. So could, he, before, uh, could you could you uh, quickly explain the idea of the signi- the uh, signified and the signifier? The signified and the signifier.
1: Okay, so if I were to say the word dog as
0: a signifier, <coughs> and I put the word dog into your mind you're
1: thinking of a dog that's entirely different from the dog that I'm thinking about. So even though I'm trying to be as clear as possible with my methods of communication, I said dog, and I thought of my dog sitting down next to me right now who's pregnant with four puppies, and you're thinking of a German Shepherd from a TV show, for instance. So, the, so signifier and signified are never the same thing, although when we throw out signifiers, that's the, the most direct attempt at communication that we've so it's just recognizing that chasm when you're trying to communicate with someone. At least that's the idea that I'm operating with in the novel.
0: No, I, I, I think from my own uh, limited reading of Derrida, <laughs> I, I would agree with you. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but with, with, with all of that in mind, what... So what 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 are you doing now? Do you have plans for a, uh, another novel? Are you uh, what are I, you working I on do, now? I do have plans for another
1: novel. I have plans to every oh okay. Well, this novel is going to be it's going to Okay, uh, I <laughs> I do have plans for another novel. Uh, I'm keeping it close to my chest though. It has to do with um. I've kept it, I've kept a journal since I was 15. Wow. And I'm I'm exploring the the possibility of publishing it in a dramatized format. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of ideas floating around in my
0: head, and it's one of the reasons why I picked up Camus again, and I'm reading The Outsider. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I don't want, I I really want to answer your question.
1: Uh, let me just put it that way, but it's still a very vague thought in my mind. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm getting there.
0: That's a very honest answer. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs>
1: okay.
0: For, uh, um, for you and for our listeners, because this is just a favorite author of mine, um, I would recommend reading Ben Lerner if you have it, because this is it's very similar to the ideas that are going behind here.
1: I will definitely read Ben Lerner.
0: Yeah, Thank he's, you so much. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic, and his whole thing is... um. Uh, fictionalizing and dramatizing the actual substance of his life. His characters even share his name. It's, it's, it's fantastic. All
1: right, that sounds like great future thought, actually. Thank you so much for
0: that. Of course, it's my pleasure, and thank you uh, so much for writing and publishing The Diary of Norman Kaye. Uh, it was more than a pleasure to read, and I, and I believe and hope that uh, whoever's listening will read it and think the same
1: well oh, thank you so much and thank you so much for the interview I had a great time me
0: me too thank you it was uh, um, I think a joy for everyone
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so <laughs>